Amen. Let's stand this morning and go to the Lord in prayer. I know there are many needs that are heavy on many hearts. And uh, we want to ask the Lord to minister to them. Does anyone have any special requests that you would like to be made known? I just want the will of God for our lives, this church, this city. Amen. God's people. Amen. Does anyone else have any requests? If not, let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you today in a petitioning spirit. We certainly understand the inadequacy of our inabilities in comparison to your sovereign power. There are things beyond our human control, Lord, that only you can do and make the difference in. We pray today that you would touch every sick and infirmed individual. Likewise, God, do a full sweep all across this house and in our hearts that we might rise in the strength and power that only comes from you and your spiritual dynamic ability. We consult you, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you in dirt cross despised the shame. Minister today, Lord. Do your mighty work in this Bible class. Have your way. I want to endeavor to lecture from some segments and portions and aspects of Scripture in order to enlarge our understanding and broaden our spiritual horizons, even as the Lord would be our tutor, that He might put into my mind and heart that which is necessary, that I could be an effective teacher. What a year 2020 has been. Not a dream, but a nightmare, striking fear that if we could, we would erase from our memories the drudgery of long months laden with misery amid a pandemic for which we need more than a vaccination, but a victory. Maybe I'm hoping against hope, but I'm curious if there's a possibility that God would come as the Moses to reenact the Red Sea and lift his rod to wall up these waters so that 7.8 billion people could cross over. We need his touch today. We We need the healing that comes from the balm of the wounded side of the man who bled on Calvary's mountain. We shall read today from the writings of John chapter number 9 where... The Beloved sees Jesus Christ in all of His divinity. John chapter number 9. Let us begin reading at the first verse. And as Jesus passed by, He saw a man which was blind from his birth, And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. 
I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When He had thus spoken, He sped on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way therefore, and washed, and came seen. I want to speak today from this text, Journey in the Dark. Journey in the Dark. The Lord bless you for standing. You may be seated. Perception is so prescient that it is never any better than a man's biases that are based upon his belief system. Twelve tribes of Israel encamped around the tabernacle with each tribe having its own particular standard. The standard of the tribe of Dan was a serpent. For Dan said, He shall be a serpent in the path that bites the horse's heels. After Israel settled in Canaan, the standard of Dan was changed from a serpent to an eagle. Understand the nature of a serpent, diametrical to that of an eagle. Serpents bite and spew venom, but eagles catch the wind and soar. Serpents are not a threat to eagles, whereas eagles swoop down with talons, snatch serpents. A man's perception is never any better than his biases. If he is in coop with conservatives, but his standard is serpent, how can he be principally ethical? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew strength. Mounting up with wings as eagles. That is the standard of the apostolic church. That is the rallying cry to which we gather today. Matthew 24 teaches, Wheresoever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered. In this particular reference, the body is none other than the carcass of the Christ hanging on the cross. Serpents feed on roadkill or whatever is feasible, but eagles do not eat roadkill. They only feed on the carcass of fresh kill. When an eagle lands where the body is, the first thing it goes after is the heart. Jesus was wounded in His side on the cross, out of which blood and water flowed. To this end, the apostle writes, we have boldness to enter into the holiest holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. A way has been opened through His wound. Is anyone willing today to walk through that wound and go after His heart? When God made the reference of David, He said, I have found David, a man after my own heart. After appeals to a hunger 
that's insatiable. For they that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. The word hunger there in the Greek is panayo, to crave ardently or to seek with eager desire. Mark tells how Joseph of Arimathea craved the body of Jesus to take it down from the cross. He craved a dead, lifeless body, unable to be a blessing to Him. Do we only crave the church when it can be a blessing to us? Or do we still crave the church and have a hunger for it? when it is suffering and going through a downtime. I don't know about you today, but my desire for the church is just as strong as it's ever been. My hunger to be a part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, is just as strong and eager and to crave everything that she's ever offered to me. Eagles not only go after the heart, but they also drink the blood. This science is scriptural. The Bible says the eagle dwelleth upon the crag of the rock. From thence she seeketh to pray, and her eyes behold afar off. Her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there she is. Jesus likewise expounded, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth My flesh and drinketh My blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is meat indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. How can this sarsix be meat? And how can this hyama be drink? Many of the disciples went back no longer following Him because this kind of teaching was just too deep. Eating flesh, drinking blood, sounds almost morbid or inhumane. Or maybe they misunderstood Jesus Christ. But to be sure, this is not cannibalism, but this is the ingesting of spiritual nutrition in the intimacy of holy, holy communion. Consider the scene of the Last Supper Jesus told the twelve with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you. Desire is epithemia. Desire is epithemisa. With epithemia, I have epithemisa with you. Can you feel the emotion bottled up in Jesus all of a sudden gush? Why, when He had already eaten the Passover with them on three separate occasions, does Jesus act as if He had marked this supper on His calendar? Especially when the likes of Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot were sitting at the table. Jesus knew that Peter would deny Him. And Jesus knew that Judas would sell Him for 30 pieces of silver. And yet, with desire, he desired to eat this Passover with them. Oh, hallelujah. And then he turned to Simon Peter and said, Behold, Satan has desired.
desire to have you, to sift you as wheat. But I want to let you know, Peter, that my desire for you is stronger than Satan's desire. And the only reason the devil has not extinguished some of us and taken us out in 2020 is because Jesus Christ's desire to have communion with us, to sup with us, to be with us is stronger than the devil's desire. For the devil only desires us because he hates us and because the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's where his desire emanates. That's the basis of his desire. But Jesus Christ's desire for us does not emanate from destruction. It does not emanate from him wanting to steal or kill from us. But he said, I've come to give you life and that life will be more abundant. He desires us today because He wants to bless us. He wants to empower us. He wants to strengthen us in this hour of spiritual distress. Laden with hearts burdened with the cares of all that encumbers us. Supper beginning, Jesus lifted the cup. The New Testament in His blood, He broke the bread symbolizing the breaking of his body that would be masticated at the whipping post and so very broken on the cross. Paul then picks up this theme with such brilliance. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For all those whose standard is a serpent, for all those who tie inextricably their allegiances to the snake, for all those who bite and devour with their tongues, for all those who strike and are given to strife, as for me and you, if you want to know where we are, if you want to find us in this hour of the end time, you're going to find us gathered wheresoever the body is. That's where the eagles are going to be. And I'm telling you today, I don't intend to fly over, but I intend to land. I'm going after His heart. I hunger today for His heart. I want to drink the blood. I want to eat the flesh. I want to partake of the body. I want to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Paul said the reason why some of you are sick and you're pining away and you're not spiritually growing is because you have not yet discerned the Lord's body when you come to the table of communion. Oh, hallelujah. It is written in the volume of the book, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body hast thou prepared me. The prophet Isaiah declared centuries ago that the imprisoning of the captives must be lawful. He said if you're going to take somebody captive, you can only take them captive under lawful orders in Scripture. Scripture teaches in John chapter 10 that Satan is a thief and a robber, and that he, through his thievery, climbed up some other way than the way of the truth and the life. 
He coiled Himself in a serpent and encroached Eden. But when the fullness of the time had come, a babe was born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Herod sought to kill all the Hebrew babies because he was after the body of the one babe. Through Ledger Domain, Satan wrested control over Adam's body and lawfully took him captive. Not to mention Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness with the intention likewise to seize control over Christ's body like he did Adam's. Irrespective, Jesus came out of the wilderness with fasted flesh in a prepared body. The Bible says, however, also in the power of the Spirit. When John baptized Jesus in the descender, the baptism was a witness to a change of the priesthood. Then the Spirit descended in the form of a dove on Jesus' body, preparing Him for ministry. And six days before Passover, Mary entered the room and she broke the box and anointed the feet of Jesus with the ointment. She was preparing the body by anointing His walk on the eve of His death. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took a hundred pounds of preparation spices and came to Pilate begging the body of Jesus. They carefully took the body down from the cross and prepared it in death. They washed the wounds and bathed off the blood and wrapped it in the balm and spices. And then they placed the body in a borrowed tomb. Borrowed but not bought because the body wasn't meant to stay in the tomb but to rise on the third day. He that descended into the lowest parts of the earth is the same also that ascended into the heavenlies. For as our great high priest Jesus Christ ascended into the heavenly temple and offered his blood on the mercy seat to finish and finalize redemption. Afterwards, he reappeared glorified. Jesus' body incrementally went through the processes of preparation while the life force of blood pulsated in his veins. But once he was emptied of that blood, the body was no longer being prepared because it was finally perfected for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily he's no longer being prepared he's already been perfected but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. I want to say today in this dispensation we're being prepared. But one of these days we're going to be perfected and rise in the power and in the glory of His Spirit to be in heaven forever. I cannot wait, but with bated breath and holy anticipation, I come today with anticipation to step across those pearly gates. I long just to look into His wonderful face and the cares and the things of this world will fade in view in the perfection of the Lamb. But as for now, 
incrementally. Day by day, week by week, we work out a relationship through the processes of preparation. Because we're supposed to present our bodies a living sacrifice in preparation that we might be presentable in perfection on the day the trumpet sounds. Some in the ecclesiastical community are reluctant to be ready. Others, however, are ready for apostolic revival. Right. The apostle wrote to the church, for as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them in Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago. And your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, <clears throat> lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest haply if they of Macedonia come of me and find you unprepared. I want to say this morning the church was ready for revival a year ago. The church was ready for a miraculous visitation and supernatural invigoration of the Spirit a year ago. But unforeseen events have put a wrinkle in what we were ready for a year ago. Transpiring globally across our world, causing many of our apostolic preachers and saints likewise to lose their lives to an insidious, devilish, nightmarish of a disease called coronavirus or SARS-2. But however, as we enter into a new frontier of 2021, we're still ready. We're still just as ready today as we were a year ago. And now we're prepared. If ever before we're prepared to see the glory, we have prepared ourselves in prayer. We have prepared ourselves in supplication. The devil thought he was going to stifle the church for what he did a year ago. But this year is a brand new opportunity for us to step across a new threshold into an era and a place and a power and a dimension of revival. We were ready a year ago, but we're even more ready now for a spiritual revival that's going to cause the church in America and the world to fall to her knees and seek the face of God. Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman who constrained him to eat bread. And it was that as often as the prophet passed by, he turned into the quarters of this woman and her husband to partake and eat bread. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. Let us build a little chamber with a bed, a table, a stool, and a candlestick that when he cometh to us, he shall turn in. 
And so it fell in a day when he came and turned into the chamber. And he lay there to rest. What was the place where the prophets stopped to eat bread became a place where he stayed because somebody had the perception to build a bed, a table, a stool, and a candlestick. Hallelujah. Many today stop at by the church if but just to partake of the bread of the word of life. To somehow feed the hunger of their hearts. To somehow just temporarily stop to satiate the need they have for that week in their souls. But they don't have enough commitment in full selling out of a surrender to stay long enough for God to build and chisel and hammer and make something out of the constitution of their character. I don't know about you today, but 2020 has been a difficult year. And I need more than just bread. Oh, thank God for the bread of the word. But man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I need God to build something in my character. I need through all the pain and suffering I've endured physically in my body this year. Not just another feast of bread, but I need something to be built. I need there to be built a fresh anointing. I need there to be built in me a new capacity for power. Whatever God's got to do, take the lumber of my life lay it on the bench you look down at God if you see any mortises if you see any crowns if you see any maladjustments or points of weakness in me that is not going to be fitting for the construction of your church I'm asking you to take the saw of suffering I'm asking you to take the hammer of the word I'm asking you to take all the pneumatic tools in your tool bag open up your toolbox God and get to work and build something of my life make something of my character So that I can be the preacher you want me to be. I find in the extrapolation scripture, Moses, under the careful guidance of Moses, God gave stern reminders of instruction in the specificities of the making of the tabernacle plan. And there's one part and piece of furniture that God told Moses that when Moses gave instruction to the artificers, a holy and Bezalel, how they should make the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the cherubims that sat atop the mercy seat, he said, when you make them, you make them of beaten work, of beaten work that's come out of the fire. Oh, hallelujah today. God wants to make, He wants to construct a work of mercy in our lives. He wants to construct a work of spiritual intimacy and holy fellowship out of us. He wants to make us from a cut. He wants to make us from a bolt of fabric. Amen. And the only way that God can effectively make cherubims that can maintain fellowship in the presence of mercy is by 
the beaten work. Because our builder does not build any other way than by the beaten work. As he hammers and he pounds because he's trying to fashion and he's trying to form the gold in the fire. Malachi's message as God was about to close the book on the Old Testament, he said, he said, I want you to take him down to the fuller's field in the highway where the fuller's field is because there's a special kind of soap that was made in that fuller's field that had these special qualities of detergent that could wash away any stain on any garment. I want God today to take me to the fuller's field. Somehow, God, wash away the stain. Wash away the spots. Wash away the uncleanness that I've accumulated in my life. But also, he said, there is also the work of the goldsmith who as he looks at the gold simmering in the fire as he beats it works with it to fashion it and mold it he always knows that gold has achieved the pristine of perfection when he can finally see his reflection in the gold I want the Lord today as he looks down over his heavenly balcony to somehow see in me a quality of purity of a spiritual perfection in ore to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. The axiom without a vision the people perish. Vision is the Hebrew word kazon, meaning revelation. Perish is the Hebrew word yapara, to cast off restraint. The magnetism of a false finish line has taken many out of the zone of kazon and caused them to cast off restraint. I want you to listen to me carefully. Let us break the bands asunder and cast away the cords because the quest of the human spirit is to be free. Give me liberty or give me death. The cry sparked the fires of revolution. What a strange dichotomy, Patrick Henry. Because when I get my liberty, I often get my death. Because I don't yet understand the purpose of why liberty was given. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death. All are yours. Here, there's neither prohibitive nor restriction. Who needs a license when you can roam without the ranges? Just as long as I'm free, free to express myself to frolic and to play. Some say a man cut from a different bolt. I've cast out off all restraints that once inhibited, breaking the chains of codes. All is mine. So 
I've decided to take a walk in the wider world of things. And for the first time in my life, I feel so alive. Sighing, I stop to breathe the fresh air of my newfound freedom. As long as I have Paul's pen and Apollos' eloquence along with a little Cephas power, I will be just fine. All is mine. However, to leave off there would be to arrive at a false finish line. For in the next stroke, the writer pointedly says and ye are Christ don't tell me this morning what is yours amen what I want to know is to whom do you belong don't talk to me about your liberty what I want to know is where is your loyalty all things are yours all things are mine but the question is are we Christ and today more than ever if suffering and pain and hardship has taught me anything that not that nothing that I have really belongs to me but what matters the most is not my liberty but my loyalty all things are mine but I am his because somewhere in the midst of my sorrow in the agony of my pain facing another sunrise on the tomorrow I found a place in him where I've fallen in love and I said God I just don't want my liberty I want to have loyalty to this relationship I want to have loyalty to this love all things are mine but I am Christ I'm a do loss I'm a slave. I'm a servant to love. Don't ask me to break the chains. Don't you ask me to somehow unfetter myself from these shackles that hold me to being one of his. I'm kind of like the Hebrew servant under the old Levitical system that he was free to go his way in the seventh year after he served the master seven years. He was free to leave. But if he plainly said, I love my master. I love this relationship. I'm not going anywhere. And that's how I feel because the high priest would take him to the door of the tabernacle and bore his ear through with an awe, which was the mark of identity that he forever belonged to his master. And today I could leave if I wanted to because all things are mine but I want God to take me to the door. I want him to bore my ear through with an awe. I don't want to leave. I'm yours. I'm yours. I belong to you. I'm sold out to you. Consider Isaac. Do you not realize, ladies and gentlemen, that he was 25 years of age when God summoned his father Abraham to sacrifice him on the summon of Moriah? A grown man with his own mind. A grown man with all the constitution of his own will to make and direct his own decisions for the course of his own life. You understand Isaac was not obligated to obey or follow the mandate of God that God was requesting of his father Abraham. Isaac had liberty because he was a man with a will. 
And because of that will, he had the sovereign, he had the right to make a choice. Isaac had the choice of liberty. But what amazes me, that instead of choosing liberty, he chose loyalty and obeyed God's plan for his father on a journey in the dark. Neither of them fully understanding all that was going to happen or fall out in the fallout of it all. But Isaac, at any point, upon whom was laid the wood and upon whom responsibility was to carry the fire at any point he could have capitulated he could have stopped and told his father he said this is between you and God amen this is between your relationship with God not my relationship it's not a matter of my loyalty it's a matter of yours I can choose my liberty and go back to the foot of the mountain but Isaac never did that but he submitted to God's plan for somebody else's life. And he said, Father, I'm going to be loyal to you. God is looking for a generation of preachers and saints that are coming on the forefront of this hour. Amen. That will step into the covenant relationship that our forefathers have made with God in a place of prayer. We can choose liberty, but instead we choose loyalty to the purposes of God to all that has been spoken to Father Abraham to all that has been mandated to our spiritual fathers we got a responsibility today to carry the fire and carry the wood while our father in the spirit carries the knife it's the elders that have the knife that's going to drive through our heart it's the elders that know how to take the, the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and mara. They know. They become experts at wielding this sword. They have become experts at wielding this knife, knowing when to drive it in the heart, knowing when to heal with the administration of the Word of God. But it's our responsibility as an up-and-coming generation to carry the fire and carry the wood, the wood, is symbolic amen of humanity we must carry the burden of humanity in this hour the fire is symbolic of the Holy Ghost we gotta have the Holy Ghost and fire on the inside we gotta be loyal to the fire and loyal to the needs of a generation who needs our testimony who needs our prayer life This is between Abraham and God. But I love God so much. And I even love Abraham. But I'm willing to be loyal. Moreover, 15 years later, when, when, when Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren, scholars tell us that Isaac returned to the place, to the very locale, on Moriah where he showed loyalty to his father and there he prayed and God opened the womb of his barren life this church of this generation is facing the plight and the blight of spiritual barrenness 
But I believe that if we'll go back to places where fathers have sacrificed and spiritual fathers have dedicated themselves in covenant relationship with God, if we'll return to ancient altars and somehow seek the face of God, that, that the barrenness that the barrenness that afflicts this generation, the curse of which is going to be opened. And Zion's going to travail. Bring forth children. Hallelujah. I'm preaching today, journey in the dark. The famed aviator and author, Helen Keller, who was physically blind, stated a profound truth that holds significance and validity for us today. She said the only thing worse than being blind is having eyes, but not having vision. Samson had eyes to see, but he seemed blinded by his wanderlust and by his misguided passion. He turned aside into the vineyards of Timnath and he saw a woman instead of seeing God's plan for his ministry, he saw a woman, a different form of passion, instead of giving that passion to God. Despite how many times the Spirit of God tapped him for service, Samson could never seem to conquer his weakness. But it became latent and more latent. And that spirit grew and it grew. The writer said in the New Testament that some are past filling. They are so numb that they no longer have any nerve, kind of like a leper who is impervious to touch, who does not know when they lose an extremity, a finger, or a toe, or even a nose, because they are cold to touch. They have no nerve. I find it no less than incredibly stupendous. Jesus Christ, who was the purest man, separate, holy, undefiled, did no wrong, in whose mouth was no guile, walked into the house of one reported by the name of Simon the leper, visited the house of a leper. Yet Jesus within proximity of somebody with a devilish disease, never compromised his own purity, but he maintained clean and holy and righteous. Moreover, what is striking about that vignette in that story is that Simon the leper no doubt was like any other leper his nervous system was totally dead. That he had no feeling in his fingers. No feeling in his feet. He had no feeling. Therefore, he could not appreciate the reach of a touch in touching Jesus. But Jesus, who was always touched with the feeling of our infirmities, he was able to touch him. Right. Because Jesus had feeling, a feeling of love, Hallelujah. a feeling of hope. Hallelujah. And in the areas of my life where I've lost contact with God through a lack or delinquency of prayer and become spiritually insensitive, 
lost feeling, he still feels for me. Yes, he does. He still has the ability to touch oh, me. Right? Yes, he does. Hallelujah. Because oh, he inerringly and unadulteratingly loves me. Are you with me this morning? The eye of the servant looks to the hand of his master. The servant is so sensitive. His eye is trained to study the motions of the hand of the master that he will only move with his eyes as the master's hand moves. I want there to be in me as well as in you a developed matriculation and sense of sensitivity to the Spirit of God. That when we come into a service, we are studious, but not studious to the script, not studious to the song, not studious to the performance, but we have learned how to study the motions of the movements of the hand of the Holy Ghost. That as it moves, that as it touches, that as that hand begins to dance in a service, that I I ain't doing anything until I see the motion of that hand. I'm not about to open my, my, my mouth to preach until I see the motion and the movement of that hand. I'm not going to run the aisles until I feel the hand. I'm not going to say hallelujah until I feel the hand. But oh brother, when that hand begins to move, there better be a response in you. And there better be a response in me that says I love you. I want to do your work. I want to do your will. I'm a servant. I've called my eyes trained to study this hand. Samson had become increasingly insensitive to God's spirit. Bear with me for a few more moments. So much so until finally he gave his heart to another woman. When he showed the secrecies of his covenant when he showed it to Delilah, revealing the secret of the very pith of his power and strength, that the Philistines bound him and shackled him. And they cut off the seven locks of his hair and they gouged out his eyes. Seven locks is indicative of the number of completion or perfection. The enemies, one of his foul intentions in this hour today is to cut off the seven locks of the hair of the United Pentecostal Church and every other entity, whether the AOJC or any other alphabet order, because the hair is a sign of a Nazarenean covenant of a spiritual relationship with God. But while Samson bemoaned sitting in prison Blind and, bef and, and befuddled, baffled by how he could ever land here, howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again. If you study science, you'll understand that anatomically, hair grows as it pushes up through the root and out the follicle, through the skin where it is made visible. However, once the hair is at the skin surface, the cells within a strand of hair are not alive anymore, but they are officially dead. The hair growing, though dead, 
however, was a sign that the very life at the root of who Samson was on the inside was still alive. The Bible says that you are dead and your life is hid with Christ, with God in Christ. We can ridicule the man of failure to somehow mitigate his saving graces. But if you'll just give him a little time, if you'll give him an opportunity to come to an altar, soon the follicles of his faith will start growing again. You know why? Because the life is not on the surface. The life is hid with God in Christ. That's why there is the potentiality for restoration. That's why all the prodigals could come back. Amen. It's not the hair because the cells and the hair are dead. But what matters is the life that's on the inside. And today Jesus Christ has come to reinvigorate that life. To re-empower that life. That we can rise again. Oh, in a brand new anointing. In the freshness of a holy zeal. Yes, to do a work for God. Almost beyond humiliated. Samson was overcome with so much shame. With so much guilt. A lad took him by the hand and led him to the pillars upon which the house stood. It was a journey in the dark as Samson was being led by a little lad. There assembled at the house of Dagon, the Philistines made sport of Samson. They mocked him. They scorned him. They laughed at him. The man that used to be the judge that was the deliverer of the nation. Samson, just a form of his former self, leaned against the pillars with all the might, just a little bit that remained in him. And he said a prayer. And the prayer was to be avenged of the Philistines for his two eyes. His dying request was to be vindicated for his eyes. And though he never recovered his eyesight, for the first time in his life, he saw with insight and he saw with perception and he saw with the vision of God by which he was able to bring down the house. In fact, killing more in his death than he did in his lifetime. I'm here to tell you today, amen, if I fall away, if I fell, I want to rise again like Samson did because baby, if I'm going down, I'm going down with the full house. If I I'm going to crumble. I want to crumble and crash with the full house. And at least have the perception of God that one may never have had during his lifetime. Like the son of Podaskirion, I seek for the light today because the light is what I love. Somehow through exposure, I've been exposed to he that is the light of the world. I've come to know in long seasons nestled in a chamber of prayer that light. I gravitate to it. I even so deeply long for it. But somehow, I always seem to find myself wandering on a journey in the dark, blinded with no sense of clarity and no sense of direction 
like Francis Chadwick who attempted the first time to swim the English Channel but she got only 35 meters into the swim when the fog the density of which hung so low across the channel it was too thick it was too dense that she could not see because of a lack of perceptivity and vision not able to see the other side of the, of the shoreline she stopped the first time it's kind of like how I feel today you understand that the word blind and blindness are a word picture in the Greek of a man in a clouded almost skewed state of mind trying to find his way through the smoke and the fog reaching if there is any glint of light at the end of the dark dark tunnel through the smoke and the fog the text of which I read in your hearing tells us of a man that was born blind it seems to me that some men are birthed into the ministry without any setbacks or obstacles to overcome. It almost seems that they just seamlessly step into a vision that's already been cast for them like like another pet like another Solomon inheriting a throne in an endless genealogy other men however it seems are birthed into the ministry as if they are blind and unable to see sequestered trapped trying to find their way through the smoke and the fog blindsided by devils while struggling against the brush of egos Jesus said plainly in this text, he said it's not because the parents sinned that this man was born blind, you understand? And now in a spiritual context, when I view this scriptural um, reading, I understand that every preacher and every saint alike is the offspring of his parents. Every preacher has his parents. Jerusalem, who, who was above is free, she is the mother of us all. And Jesus Christ, I affectionately call him Abba Father whose blood washed me when I was buried in the waters of who in his mercy didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater just because he noticed that I was blind, just because he noticed that I had this glaring incapacitation and impairment and handicap. He never, never threw me away. And Jerusalem, oh, she has been such a loving, caring mother. She birthed me and she rocked me even as she cradled me in her arms. She has always been there for me she has nourished me with a, with a sincere milk of the word by which I've grown in the constitution of my primitive ministry and after just after all my parents have done for this preacher after all Jerusalem has done for this preacher after all my heavenly father has done for me how then do I have a right to say that it's their fault that I was born blind or had to take my first steps my baby steps in the smoke and in the fog I chalk it up he that made the CNI has also made the blind our heavenly father has a purpose for the darkness this story picks up Jesus spit on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man and then told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Can you imagine this man blind, physically impaired, with mud caked 
in his eyes, staggering from side to side, trying to find his way, trying to walk on a journey in the dark, somehow just to make it to the pool. Oh, and yet we don't see any evidence where anybody assisted this blind man as he journeyed in the dark to help him get to the pool. I'm come to rise this morning and tell you, it's been a long, long journey of living for God. I've staggered and I've not been perfect. I've even stumbled in my way. I've groped in the dark to somehow find my way through the smoke and the fog. But if somehow I can make it to the pool, if I can just step down into the pool, I believe I'm going to see the light. I'm preaching to people this morning. 2020 has been a long, long journey as we all have walked through the dark. But if we can make it to the pool this morning, if somehow we can step into the pool of His power, we're going to see the light with clarity and with vision. Oh, hallelujah. The dichotomy of this text is so glaring to me that I must mention it before I close my dissertation, my lecture. You understand, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. He said, the night comes when no man can work. And yet Jesus understands he's about to minister to a man that's blind, that's never seen the light of the world, that's lived his entire life in the night. Jesus just wanted to know he wanted to give him a little bit of hope amen you may not see the light right now but the moment you step down in the water the moment you make it to the pool you're going to see the light you're going to know who I am in the power of my revelation amen if somehow on a journey in the dark if we can just make it to the pool, the place of his power, of his faith, and of his glory, of his doxa, we're going to see with clarity the revelation of he who is the light of the world, but not only that. Later on, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. But you'll never know that you're the light of the world until your blindness has been cured. You're never going to know who you are in, in me until the blindness has been cured. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm ready not only to see him and all of his glory, but I want to know who I am too. I don't want to journey any farther in the dark and live the rest of my life in the night. I want to know who I am as the light. I want to know who I am as a powerful vessel in his hands as an instrument ordained for the serviceableness of his holy purpose yes, my God. and I close a journey in the dark and when God decided to raise up a prominent mouthpiece who would be a declarative who would be a subjective it would be transparent in the communication of God's heavenly purposes. He chose Saul of Tarsus on the, on the Damascus, Damascus Road. You understand that if anybody had clarity over matters of revelation concerning the Torah and the law of Moses, 
and all the mandates and strictures contained therein. There was no better scholar, teacher, or tutor, or disciplinarian than Saul of Tarsus. A Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the stock of our father Abraham. He was a man with a mental intellectual constitution of an IQ of 155 that superseded even the likes of Gamaliel at whose feet he sat. A man who could speak who was a polyglot who could fluently speak Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek and even some Latin. You see, when Jesus or when Pilate had the inscription written at the very head and top of the cross, Jesus, King of the 